Well, good morning, everyone. My clock shows 9.30, so I'm going to take that as my cue to begin. Welcome in. Come and take your seats. I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to take a look into our next book in our tour through the Bible. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have chosen to speak to us in a way that we can understand and that you've ordained that it would be recorded for us in a book that we could look at and study and reflect on. I thank you that your spirit works through these words and speaks them to us and illuminates them to us, helps us to understand them. And I ask that he would do that this morning. As we look in your word, as we listen to you, to your voice, I ask that your spirit would make it clear to us, we would be able to understand it, and that you would uh, work in our hearts and minds and our lives in the way that uh, you would desire your word to do this morning. And God, I pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was in college, I took a class that was explicitly about Ephesians. That was the only subject matter. And the way that my professor described the book in relation to the other epistles of Paul has always really stuck with me. I've always thought about Ephesians in this way. He described the Pauline epistles as a mountain range that were filled with various peaks and that provide different types of reward for summiting the different mountains that are in this range. Among those peaks, Romans is far and away the most necessary to climb, though in many ways it's also the most difficult. In order to get to the rest of the range, you need to summit Romans. And as Carrie described to us a few weeks ago, Romans is in many ways the bulwark of New Testament theology, providing the grounds for essential doctrines such as justification, sanctification, as well as defending the sovereignty of God in salvation. But if Romans is the most robust and essential of the mountains of the Pauline epistles, Ephesians gives you the best of use. It's not as tall as Mount Romans, nor is it as challenging to understand, but what you can see when you summit Ephesians blows you away. If Romans is Mount Everest, Ephesians is perhaps Mount Blanc, overlooking France and Italy in the Alps. Or perhaps it is Table Mountain in South Africa, looking out over Johannesburg, or excuse me, Cape Town, and the expansive Atlantic. Or it's Machu Picchu in Peru, with its incredible history and architecture and vibrancy. The journey to the top of Ephesians is not as exhausting as it is to the summit of Romans, but the view from the top will leave you breathtaking, stunned at the glorious beauty unfolding before you. Ephesians is the book to which I have returned more than any other book in Scripture. And in my own personal experience, I can attest that these views are inexhaustible. They reward the first-time visitor and the experienced climber. So grab your equipment and let's set off for a quick tour of this majestic peak. And by the way, should you find yourself needing further depth than we're able to provide this morning, I would commend to you a group of experienced mountain climbers in our youth group. We've been studying Ephesians verse by verse each Sunday for the past 14 months, and next week we'll finally get to chapter 5. So we'll be, they have a lot more depth, and we'll be able to answer any question you have about the book of Ephesians. We can't take quite as much time as our climb today, but we'll overview the book so you can share in the resplendency that Ephesians offers. We'll begin by providing the background of the book, touching on topics such as the date and the author, 
the setting of the book and the major themes, and then we'll move into the content where we'll walk through the outline of the book. But let's begin with the background. Paul's authorship of Ephesians is not disputed. He identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 1, and he refers to himself as an apostle and a prisoner. And that second identification helps us to know when he wrote this letter. Paul was in prison multiple times during his ministry, but his imprisonment in which he wrote Ephesians is almost almost certainly his imprisonment in Rome, which is mentioned in Acts 28, where he waited multiple years under house arrest for his audience with Caesar. This imprisonment ran from about 60 to 62 AD, and during this time he would have written the book of Ephesians. He also would have written Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which collectively are known as the prison epistles. Paul identifies Tychicus in Ephesians 6, 21 and 22 as the one who delivered Ephesians, and he likely carried it along with Colossians and Philemon as he took those letters to their respective recipients. Now as for the setting, it's helpful to understand some details about the audience to whom Paul is writing. The gospel came to Ephesus, which is a city in Asia Minor, in Acts chapter 18, when Aquila and Priscilla helped a young man named Apollos grow in his understanding of the faith and then joined him as they shared the gospel in Ephesus. Shortly afterwards, in Acts 19, (coughs) Paul also came to Ephesus and built upon this foundation. God blessed Paul's ministry there, and he spent over three years ministering in Ephesus, which was longer than any period he spent in any city during his missionary journeys. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was marked by his boldness and his eloquence. Acts 19 records him reasoning and persuading people, speaking boldly, not with words that are meant, sorry, not with I've miswritten this, sorry. He spoke boldly with words that were meant to convince people of the truth. And not only this, Paul ministered with incredible power. Handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul were placed upon the sick, and those sick people were healed. Paul ministered with eloquence and power, which are two marks that define his epistle to the Ephesians as well. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was also marked by victory specifically over the spiritual forces. The clothing that touched Paul was also used to cast out demons, so effectively that many Jewish people, not believers, but people seeking to to do things for their own gain, attempted to do the same, and they were roundly and embarrassingly defeated. The demons in Ephesus had incredible power, but even an inanimate object that had touched Paul had power over these forces. This power also led a significant number of magicians to repent of their sin and burn their magical books, which would have been valued in today's money at over $200,000. This caught the attention of an idol maker named Demetrius, who recognized that if the gospel was going to take root in Ephesus, his business was going to suffer. And so in response, he instigated thousands of Ephesians into a riot behind their false god, Artemis. And this shows that there were significant powers and spiritual forces at play in Ephesus. But nevertheless, the power of the gospel proved victorious. As Luke tells us twice in Acts chapter 19, that the gospel continued to increase and prevail mightily. And he even adds that all the residents of Asia 
So Ephesus is the main city of Asia. Asia Minor referred to all of Turkey, or at least the, the western region of Turkey. And Luke says that all the residents of Asia heard about what was going on. They heard the gospel, both Jews and Greeks. And this last tidbit is important regarding the audience of the epistle to the Ephesians. Paul ministered in Ephesus, but his ministry impacted all of Asia Minor, including cities like Colossae and Laodicea, as well as the other cities mentioned in Revelation, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. Ephesus was the most significant city in Asia Minor, and in many ways it represented the region, similar to how New York City represents the East Coast or L.A. represents the West Coast. But I mention this representation because it seems likely that the letter of Ephesians was actually written to all of Asia Minor, not just to the church in Ephesus. Most scholars believe that this letter is a circular letter, one that was meant to be delivered to a city, to the church in the city, read in the church for their benefit, and then sent on to the next city for their benefit as well. As such, it would not have just benefited one church, but the church in the entire region. That is the level of impact that this epistle would have had. In part, we know, or we think, that this was a circular letter because it has very few personal details, which we would expect to have if Paul was writing just to a church filled with people that he had worked and ministered with for three years. The fact that there's none of these details shows that maybe he was writing to more than just this one body. In addition, in many of the oldest copies of Ephesians, the words in chapter 1, verse 1 that say, to Ephesus, are actually not included. And this gives more evidence to the fact that it was likely a general theological treatise written to many churches that became known as the Ephesian letter due to, its, due to the significance of Ephesus and of Ephesus' prom, prominence in Asia Minor. It truly is a letter to the Ephesians. It's just a letter to more than the Ephesians as well. So we are right to call it the letter to the Ephesians. There was no specific occasion that prompted Paul to write this letter. And unlike most of his epistles, Ephesians stands as a general letter of instruction and exhortation meant to teach the believers of Asia Minor and to encourage them with the truth of the gospel. And this is one of the reasons for its theological beauty and clarity. We don't first have to understand the specific situation in which the letter was written and then reverse engineer, okay, how does this truth apply to us now if it was written in this situation? Rather, we can read the truth of the letter simply for what it is, a glorious reflection upon the wonders of the gospel. And this is Ephesians, a theological masterpiece that both instructs our mind and exhorts our hearts. We should read it with the desire to learn about the depths of the gospel and then put those truths into practice. It is a book that is essential to the life of the church, not only because it provides incredibly practical instruction to us, but also because it describes the nature of the church itself. And the theme of the church brings us to our last section in the background. Those are the major themes in Ephesians. The church might be the central theme of Ephesians, but before I discuss that theme more, there's actually one that's a little bit more of a theological basis for the entire letter that will lead us back into the theme of the church. Nearly 30 times in this short letter, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, or in him, referring to Christ. 
And as our youth group knows, this is my favorite prepositional phrase. And you might ask why this is my favorite, or you might ask, probably more realistically, why do you have a favorite prepositional phrase? But that's besides the point. But think about what it means to be in Christ. We're not physically inside of Jesus' body, although this does speak to the closeness and the union that are true spiritually. Being in Christ means being connected to Christ, united to him, so much that we are identified with him and he with us. We are not just near to Christ. We are not just like Christ. We are not just aware of Christ. We are in Christ. This is known as the doctrine of union with Christ and is one of the most, probably the most significant theme in Ephesians. Paul says that believers are faithful in Christ. They are blessed in Christ. They are chosen in Christ, predestined in Christ, redeemed in Christ, given knowledge in Christ, made heirs in Christ. They hope in Christ. They believe in Christ. And they are sealed with the Spirit in Christ. And that's just in the first 14 verses. Our union with Christ is foundational to our salvation. It is the effectual source from which many aspects of salvation are fleshed out and applied to us. We are justified because God looks at us and sees Jesus' righteousness. Then he looks at Jesus and he sees our sin. And God sees us in this way because our faith has united us to Jesus. That is the means for God to be able to look at us in Christ and see these things intertwined. We are sanctified and made more into Christ's image because we are connected with Christ spiritually, he in us and we in him. And so the longer we are united to Christ, the more we become like him. The longer we abide in Christ, the more the branch becomes like the vine. So if Ephesians is a mountain, union with Christ is the focal point of its awe-inspiring view. And union with Christ leads us back to the central theme of Ephesians, that of the church. Ephesians focuses on the nature and beauty of the gospel, not in general, but specifically outworked in the church, God's glorious beloved bride for whom he died. The church is God's dwelling place. It is a holy temple built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The church is a body, a living organism made up of believers. And reading Ephesians will lead you to a higher view of and a greater love for the church. But why is the church related to our union with Christ? That's because this union is true individually and corporately. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul says that God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ, meaning that he is connected not just to each person who believes in him, but also to the entire church, the collected body of those who believe. Christ loves the individuals who make up the church. He loves the entire entity that is the church, made up of believers across borders and across years, And he loves the local churches that make up the visible expressions of the church. God loves the church because they are in Christ. And the topic of the church flows directly into another theme of Ephesians, that of 
of unity. And again, this is not just a general unity, but unity in the gospel, and even more specifically, in the church. A significant portion of chapters 2 and 3 deals with the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. As God unfolded his plan of redemption before Christ, he chose to do so primarily through the nation of Israel. And while he hinted throughout the Old Testament that his plan of salvation was for all people, Jews and Gentiles, it didn't become apparent exactly how he would do that until the coming of Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul shows us that God does not resolve the tension between these two antithetical groups by collapsing them into each other or by removing their distinctions completely, but rather by uniting believing Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. They're not united in anything else other than their identification in Christ, their union with their Savior. And this creates a third category outside of Jews and Gentiles, that of the church, in which ethnicity does not provide your identity, but rather your faith in Christ. And as a result, Paul shows how believers in Christ should view other believers, not primarily as Jews and Gentiles, not primarily as people unlike themselves, but rather believers who are in Christ should look at other believers as those who are also in Christ. Believers are spiritually united to Christ, and thus we are united to one another who are also in Christ. A final theme that Ephesians emphasizes is that of power, specifically in the spiritual realm. Repeatedly, Paul reminds us of the world-altering power that God worked in the gospel. This is the immeasurably great power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the life-giving power that God worked in us to make us alive in Christ. In chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul refers to God as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And that is according to the power at work within us. That reminds us both that this power is unquantifiable and, stunningly, that it is actively at work within us now. And Paul brings this theme of power to bear specifically against the powers of the spiritual realm, to whom he refers with terms like rulers or authorities or dominions, giving the ways that the Spirit evidences power against the spiritual powers in Ephesus in Acts 19. It makes sense that Paul would remind the believers in Asia of these truths again in his epistle. By repeatedly referring to the spiritual realm, Paul shows the reality that believers exist in two realms physical and spiritual, which means we must be aware of the cosmic world in which we play a part. But Paul also reminds us that in this cosmic battle, the victory has already been won. The battle is not even, for whatever power our enemy possesses pales in comparison to the power of him who raised Jesus from the dead. This is Ephesians a book written to strengthen the church in first century Asia Minor that today also serves to strengthen the 21st century church in Lawrence, Kansas. We should read this to understand the glorious depths of the gospel, not in general, but specifically applied to us in Christ. These truths then drive us to love the church, the body of Christ, 
made up of others who have also been united to Christ by faith. Now, with this understanding of the background of Ephesians, let's begin looking through the contents of the letter. The outline of the book is about as simple as you can get. Chapters 1 through 3, the first half of the book, form the first section. And chapters 4 through 6, the second half of the book, form the second section. The two halves are neatly divided between explanation and implications, or you could say indicatives and imperatives. The first half tells us what God has done for us in the gospel. This is the explanation, the indicative, the truths. The second half of the book tells us how we must live as a result of these things. Let's begin with the explanation of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3. After introducing the book in 1, 1 through 2, Paul unloads one of the longest sentences in all of Scripture, a 200-word masterpiece running from verses 3 through 14. Though our translations break it up into multiple sentences for readability, this was one continuous thought from Paul in his original letter. The first view from the mountain does not disappoint. As Paul introduces his letter by describing the blessings that we have in Christ as a result of our salvation. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is Paul's first concern in this letter? To eulogize or bless God and remind the church that God is blessed, specifically because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. These blessings exist in the heavenlies, the the heavenly places, which reminds us that we are a part of this spiritual realm even now as we exist in the physical realm. But what are these blessings, this every blessing with which God has blessed us in Christ? Well, Paul tells us that these spiritual blessings are aspects of our salvation, and he delineates them in Trinitarian fashion. In verses 4 through 6, he tells us how the Father has worked blessings in salvation, specifically by choosing us, by predestining us, by adopting us, and by determining all of these things according to the purpose of his sovereign will. These are all done in Christ, by the Father. Then verses 7 through 12 show us the blessings of salvation that are worked by the Son, Jesus, Specifically, that we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness from sin. We have riches of his grace lavished upon us. We have revelation about God's wise will. We have unity, and we have an inheritance. Then finally, verses 13 and 14 show how the Spirit provides blessings of salvation. Namely, affecting our salvation through faith and acting as both the seal and down payment of our eternal salvation. Each of these sections about the Father and the Son and the Spirit conclude with the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of his glory. And this reminds us that God has accomplished all of these blessings of salvation for his own glory and praise. And this is a truth that should drive us, as it did Paul, to glorify God as well. As Paul said in verse 3, all of these spiritual blessings are not merely ours abstractly, but specifically in Christ. 
Over and over, Paul says that God acted in salvation in Christ, showing that every aspect of our salvation has to do with our union with Christ. The second half of chapter 1 is a prayer that we would understand the first half of chapter 1. And this is the first of two prayers that Paul gives for understanding, the second of which occurs in chapter 3. And we might ask, why does Paul spend so much time, a sixth of the book, praying in his letter for the people who are going to read the letter? He does this because of the depth of the truths of the gospel that he has just explained. They're not simple. They're not things that we can understand on our own. The deep things of the Spirit can only be understood by means of the illumination of the Spirit, the Spirit giving us the eyes to see these things. And so, Paul prays in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prays that the Spirit would specifically illuminate our minds so that we can understand what he is saying. And he specifically says, I want you to understand these three things. First, he wants us to understand the hope to which God has called us. That is the glorious assurance of our eternal salvation in Christ. Second, he wants us to understand the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And this inheritance is not the inheritance that we have in Christ. This is actually Christ's inheritance in us. This is referring to the church as Christ's inheritance, showing us this is how much God loves you. I want you to understand this. And then thirdly, Paul prays that the Spirit would open our eyes to understand the immeasurable greatness of Christ's power. Again, not in theory, but specifically toward us who believe, according to the working, the active working of his great might. And this is the same great might that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This power raised Christ above every ruler and authority and power and dominion in the present age and in the past age and in the future age. This is the power at work within us, Christians. What is it insufficient for? The implication is that God's power is sufficient for all things, more powerful than habitual sin, more powerful than the greatest depths of suffering, more powerful than any human power, and more powerful than death. This power is at work within us. The heights of Ephesians 1 are mind-blowingly astonishing, but they are quickly contrasted with the description of our life outside of Christ in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And, as if to add on to this glorious description of Christ, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. No one starts life in Christ. We are in other things instead. Spiritually, we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. The prince of the power of the air was at work in us. We lived in the passions of our flesh. We are identified with sin. 
with Satan, with our flesh. We are spiritually dead, incapable of coming to Christ, and our situation was dire. And this is where we have perhaps the greatest conjunction in all of Scripture. You probably did not come to Sunday school expecting to hear about prepositions and conjunctions, but when I teach Sunday school, that's what's on my mind, so that's what you get to hear. But here's why this conjunction is so wonderful. Paul says that we are dead. We are united with death. We have no hope. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. We are hopeless, but God. God is rich in mercy. He loves us with an unending love. It doesn't matter that we are dead. God has power over death. God applies his grace to us by drawing us to faith regenerating our hearts, making us spiritually alive, and then uniting us to Christ. And notice in this whole description of how he's working the salvation, he says, we are made alive together with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are given immeasurable riches of grace in kindness in Christ Jesus. The salvation is unity with Christ. And if you hadn't caught this already, Paul then reminds us that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin, our need to be saved. Salvation is a work of God's grace that comes to us through our faith. It comes to us when we place our faith in him. Paul says in verse 10 that this grace then moves us to respond in obedience, foreshadowing the commands that he will describe in chapters 4 through 6. Then in the second half of chapter 2, Paul uses this theological foundation to drive home an essential point about the nature of the church. He has shown in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 that all people are on the same footing. Outside of Christ, we're spiritually dead. In Christ, we're saved by grace due to no work of our own. And so next, in verses 11 through 22, he shows what this means for Jews and Gentiles. He says... Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. He says that Jews and Gentiles are united in Christ. We have peace with Christ, unity in Christ, removal of hostility in Christ, fellowship in Christ. And by the way, lest we think of Jews and Gentiles as other, remember that, unless I don't know all of our ethnicities, I think all of us are Gentiles here, and that means we are squarely in this category. These verses speak to you. If you are a Gentile, you had no hope. 
But now in Christ, you have been made a fellow citizen with the saints. You have been made a member of the household, the family of God. And we can extrapolate the idea that believers in Christ must overcome any difference between ourselves and find unity in Christ, but it's also worth remembering that at the deepest level, it is Jews and Gentiles, two diametrically opposed groups that now find unity in Christ. The means of reconciliation was a mystery to people before the Holy Spirit revealed it to Paul and to the other apostles, as he explains in the first half of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Paul explains how the Gentiles are included in Christ, giving more than just a couple verses because he knows that this is earth-shattering. And then he explains his own role as a steward of God's grace to the Gentiles as he preaches to them the unsearchable riches of Christ and then reveals the previously unknown means for them to be saved. That is, to be united to Christ by faith. In verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3, Paul describes one of God's purposes in saving the church. And he says that God saved us so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And this tells us that when God saved people and established the church, he was making known the manifold, multifaceted, sovereign wisdom of God to the spiritual powers and authorities in the heavenly realm. It's as if we were a glorious trophy held up in the middle of a giant stadium filled in the seats with thousands upon thousands of angels and demons looking on. And God holds up this trophy, the church, and says, look what I made. Glory in this, in my wisdom. God shows us off. He shows how much he loves us. And this love is, God's, is Paul's theme in verses 14 through 21, where Paul again prays that, we, that by the means of the Holy Spirit, God would grant us enough strength and power to understand this love. This love has an incomprehensible breadth and length and height and depth. And yet, even though it is unknowable, Paul prays that we would know it. How should we respond to this love? By joining Paul in his second eulogy of the book, where he says in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God does abundantly more than anything we can imagine, and he is doing that now in us. Praise be to God. And if we were merely looking to revel in the goodness and glory of God in the gospel, we could finish there in chapter 3. But Paul also desires us to live differently because of these truths. And so we must also consider verses, or excuse me, chapters 4 through 6. Now these chapters are broken into two sections, each with an overarching command. The first section begins in chapter 4, verse 1, with the command to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
Paul returns to this term walk multiple, ter- multiple times in chapters 4 and 5, reminding us that the Christian lifestyle is a walk. It's, it's meant to be a continued daily, you know, a paced life that is constant, is repeated. Chapters 1 through 3 describe our glorious calling, and then chapter 4 calls us to walk worthy of that calling. And this worthiness is not in the sense of earning this worth. We know that salvation is by grace, it's not by works. No, walking worthy means walking in line with this calling. Walking in a way that reflects the calling that we have received. And in the verses and chapters that follow, Paul defines walking worthy of this calling in terms of loving God and loving others. Chapters four, the chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, shows what this looks like in the unity and the diversity of the church. The church is united to Christ, and thus we must be united to each other, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But at the same time, we have also been given a diversity of gifts in the Spirit. And we must individually use these giftings to build up one another in the church by ministering and serving and loving each other. Verses 15 and 16 describe the aim of this mutual edification. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we, the church, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When the church speaks to one another out of love, we corporately become more like our head, Christ. We press into our union with our Savior. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32 gives several specifics of how to walk worthy of our calling. As Paul says, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, how the world around us walks, how we used to walk. Rather, we must put away our former manner of life, which really wasn't life, it was death. We must put away this former manner of life and put on our new self, our identity in Jesus Christ. And this new self is expressed in how we relate to others. As we put away falsehood, we deal with our anger quickly. We show generosity. We build each other up with our words. We love the Holy Spirit, and we forgive one another. Chapter 5 continues describing our walk, calling us to walk in love as Christ loved us. And walking in love means putting away immorality. Not just in our actions, but also in our words. Rather than walking in impurity, we are to express our love for God and for others by walking in the Spirit, by overflowing with thankful praise and praising God with one another. And at the heart, this means that we must not have an inner selfishness that desires to get something from others, but rather a loving heart that is willing to submit to the needs of others, even if it means harm to yourself. And Paul continues on the theme of submission and applies it specifically to how this looks in marriage and how marriage should function in the church as a result of our union with Christ. He says that wives should submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands should love their wives as Christ loves his bride, the church, 
And here Paul links the marriage relationship with the relationship that we have in Christ. And he shows that the original description of marriage in Genesis 2 refers to Christ and the church, meaning that in the same way a husband loves his wife and cares for her with a sacrificial love, so also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not only does this give a model for how husbands and wives should interact, it also gives us another reason to revel in the unbelievable love that Christ has for us. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, describes how families should function in the church, and it exhorts both children and fathers to love one another, both in how children submit to their parents and also how fathers raise their children. In verses 5 through 9, we see a description of the appropriate actions for slaves and masters, again, prescribing actions to them based on their standing in Christ. And this brings us to the end of the first section, and it's two and a half chapters, so it's really the majority of this second half of the book. But this, this entire section describing what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling. But in the final verses of the book, from chapter 6, verse 10 on, we find the second command, which summarizes the remaining content. I'll read verses 10 through 13. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. In general, we should think of the Christian life as a walk, an active, continual, day-to-day walk. But here, Paul reminds us that we should also desire to stand. In terms of the spiritual battle that is being perpetually raged around us, We do not need to set our sights on overcoming the enemy in our own power, on taking ground, on defeating them in our own ability, but rather equipped with the knowledge that the immeasurable power of God has already secured the victory and then equipped with the armor of God, our goal is to stand, to withstand, and when all is said and done, to stand. In Ephesians we see the incomprehensible love of God poured out to us in Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ is everything, drawing us near to God and to others in our church and giving us ultimate confidence in our salvation. Then it compels us onward to walk worthy of this calling and then to stand firm in Christ Jesus in the midst of the spiritual battle. As we descend from the glorious peak of Ephesians this morning, I trust that our time spent gazing on Jesus Christ and upon the church for which he died, I hope that that has moved you with its beauty and has filled you up with the grandeur of God's good and sovereign purposes. Praise the Lord that we are in Christ. Amen. We're dismissed.